All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. Ideas to fix Twitter. Jack Dorsey says Twitter is, quote, thinking a lot about an edit tweet button. Oh, God. Yeah. Like, the, the things that are innovation in Twitter now. Yeah. Sad. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down, say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome to episode 29 of Acquired, the podcast where we talk about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. This is a very different episode for us than, uh, than usual. We decided to do a year in review, and, uh, and probably more importantly than that, um, talk about what lies ahead in 2017. So uh, Dave and I were thinking, um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about a lot of tech themes in, in a very um, sort of rambling and unstructured way over the course of the show, and uh, we went back and actually pulled out what were the tech themes that we identified from, from each episode, and, um, and we've kind of uh, basically have a little tally going of which ones were, we thought were the most important, and, uh, and we're going to kind of talk about those, 
and then um, get into the themes that we think are going to be uh, um, pretty uh, pretty dominant in 2017, or at least make some freewheeling predictions on that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, you get what you pay for here, so no guarantee we'll be right. But um, yeah, a couple notes. Uh, so Ben and I are recording this on December 30th, right at the tail end of 2016. It will, barring some editing heroics, uh, it will probably be uh, up for you guys uh, already into 2017. But um, but as we came to the end of the year, we thought, uh, especially this being our first full year of doing acquired, um, we wanted to look back and uh, and run some run some data on our own content and uh, see see what the the biggest themes of our show have been. So um, Ben and I were chatting just before we started. We recorded 23 regular episodes. Uh, well, I guess that includes specials, but 23 full episodes uh, in 2016. This is our 24th. Um, and uh, it was really fun to go through and and pull out the themes. A lot of uh, a lot of repeats. <laughs> yeah. So with that, should we uh, should we announce the acquired 2016 theme of the year? We should. And uh, frequent listeners to the show, I'm 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 sure can uh, can guess what this one's going to be, or at least who the yeah. originator of this I'm, theme I'm was. I'm shocked. Shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, discussed in six different episodes is Aggregation Theory by Ben Thompson of Stratechery. Um, this, uh, this, of course, talks about building superior user experiences as the winning strategy in an infinitely accessible, zero-cost distribution world, <laughs> a.k.a. the Internet. And this was discussed on Accompli, Snapchat, Jet, Android, Skype, and Marvel. And so I think uh, for us, it's such a, uh, it says a lot about the power of the theory that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yep. And once you realize that, oh, this is a, this is a very dominant factor in making these companies successful, um, you know, uh, every company we analyze, we're like, oh, I, I see what they're doing here. Yep. Um, a, uh, I mean, obviously a big hat tip, as we always do on this show, to, to Ben uh, Thompson and um, all of his work, but I think it's it's interesting how much we've talked about it, and also reading Ben's work throughout the year. Um, he he first published the post on aggregation theory last year in 2015, um, but how much it keeps coming up in his work too, and uh, and how he keeps refining um, this concept uh, and and adding on to it. But the core of it, I think, you know, that insight that in this world where um, where distribution costs are, are the cost of distribution is zero and in in digital marketplaces your accessible market is the entire world um, that it is really these superior customer experiences that are going to beat everything else um, because you can have sort of perfect competition amongst the whole world um, and uh, and so the best will rise to the top uh, and it's it's totally informed um, you know, my work in, in, and, and I'm sure Ben, yours too, you know, in the companies that we work with, um, when I'm meeting with startups, trying to decide which to, which to invest in and which, you know, I think might be successful and won't be. Um, it's a very, uh, been hugely influential, not just on this show, but in, in my everyday work too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, moving on to things that were discussed uh, four times throughout the year. And I think, w listeners, what we're going to do here for the structure of the show is um, move through these fairly quickly um, to kind of just, just establish a, a baseline of where we've come from and then really spend the, the bulk on, on 2017 uh, themes. 
and uh, and also we have sort of an extended carve out section to kind of talk about the best things that we've uh, you know bought or read or listened to or paid attention to this year. So um, that said, going back to the the 2016 themes, um, the ever so dominant network effects uh, in in Virgin America episode, PayPal, LinkedIn, and Adobe, and um, you know this one like for me was uh, was such a a dominant theme that I, I gave this talk um, at a product conference called Industry in, right. earlier this year, and I had like two ideas for talks going, and I was working on both of them. And um, Dave and I were recording—I forget which episode it was—but it suddenly dawned on me that, like, oh my god, my this talk has to be about network effects. And I think uh, it, it was actually pretty interesting because it was a, a conference for uh, like product managers and and people that have uh, some amount of product management in their role. And uh, it was really interesting to take sort of a venture lens um, to a product audience and talk about building um, building network effects and virality and dependencies on the rest of your user base uh, into the core product and, and rather than thinking about it as, as kind of an afterthought. Yeah. And um, is uh, Ben, is that uh, is your talk on YouTube? It's not yet. It's not. They're um, they're going to start releasing the talks. Uh, I think pretty soon here. Um, but uh, we'll definitely let the acquired audience know when um, when they can check that out. Yeah, it's. Uh, I got to uh, got the privilege of uh, seeing Ben's slides uh, and um, hearing a hearing a first draft of the talk, and uh, it was it was great. So we'll be sure to share that with you guys. Um, and yeah, on this one, I think what's uh, one of the things I learned doing the show this year. Um, and thought about is how rare like true strong form network effects are uh, and talking about it on these episodes. We, we spent a lot of time on LinkedIn um, and when we graded that episode um, talking about how, you know, that is one of the very few um, really, really strong form network effects out there. Uh, and, and, and it's striking to me that all the companies we covered, you know, some have varying degrees of them, but only a few, you know, Facebook, Snapchat, LinkedIn um, have uh, have this strong form effect. Yeah, it's really interesting thinking about the uh, strength of the sort of like relationship between the nodes of the network and how that can be super variable. Like you can you can have um, a product that has network effects that are that are just not core to the product itself, and that ends up not uh, not scaling and becoming as as powerful of a, of a sort of force of your business as the incredibly strong ones. So a couple examples I'm thinking of are uh, I use my Fitness Pal uh, when I'm I'm tracking what I eat, and there's sort of two components to it. There's there's utility to actually provide me the ability to track you know uh, how much of each macronutrient I'm eating. Um, you know, how many calories have I eaten today? Uh, what should I be getting more of? The actual uh, catalog of food that has all the nutrition data associated with that. And then, you know, I, I can make friends on that. And that's kind of important. I mean, it's interesting for sort of encouragement or accountability or anything like that. But um, an app like that is so much more utility than it is network. And then you have apps that are, are sort of a crossover. Like you look at Instagram at first. Um, and there is incredible utility to the fact that you could put filters on photos and sure you could share it out to the small network that was Instagram. Um, but ultimately there was a, a powerful utility there regardless of network. Now that, that was an amazing product that actually did grow into incredibly powerful network effects. 
Um, yep. And then you get into to things on the other side of the spectrum that have no utility and are pure network effects, like the telephone. I mean, if you have a communication network, the only purpose of it is to talk to other people on the networks or on yep. the network. And when you think about how entrenched that technology became and how long the, the telephone has been the de facto means of communication, it's uh, it's pretty clear that like the uh, the the more core your network effect is to the product itself, the more power and and or I guess staying power that that technology has. Yeah, and it's interesting too that. Um... Maybe a better distinction between because I was as I was just going through the list again, I mean, network effects have played a large role in in many of these companies we've talked about. But there's the 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 strong form single platform network effects that, that Facebook has, that LinkedIn has, that Snapchat has, and then there's the two sided network effect that marketplaces have, of which we spent a lot of a lot of time on this show between Amazon and. Um, uh, Skype. Well, Skype's a, Skype is also a strong form single platform network effect. Um, but YouTube, you know, where you have supply and demand getting matched, um, and 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 that's a that can also be a strong network effect. But it's so much harder to get going um, because mm. you have to bring both of these sides together. Whereas uh, whereas the the single platform strong form effect, where it's literally been you being on Facebook makes Facebook more valuable to me. Mm-hmm. Whereas you buying stuff from Amazon only indirectly makes Amazon more valuable to me. Right. Um, oh, great. Point. Um, there's so so few companies that can achieve the scale in that single platform, and then once you do, just the the defensibility is pretty much unbreakable. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, I saw. I was reading a thing, um, it was reflections of Obama on his presidency, and he was talking about, um, uh, actually, I think it was, I think this quote was from one of his, uh, his aides, but talking about how important the telephone was to uh, the, the Obama administration and how amazing it was that that's the way that he speaks to other world leaders and mm, yeah. how that's pretty much unchanged uh, over the last, I don't know, however many decades. But we have all yeah. this, this new technology, and you know, he was notoriously a BlackBerry addict. Um, but uh, you know, the phone is, is ubiquitous. It's, uh, you know, the, especially for landlines, pretty high quality, secure. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it's one of those. Well, and that's the, that's the classic case, right, of like two world leaders. <laughs> the value of the telephone is solely in the fact that other world leaders are available via the telephone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great. All right, let's move on. Uh, our next theme that we also discussed four times this year was um, what I like to call start small, uh, but is focusing at the outset on solving a, a specific problem for a specific customer base, not trying to be everything to everyone as at the startup phase. And um, uh, you could also think about this as, as targeting niche markets and then growing from there. Um, we talked about this on the Virgin America episode uh, with Alaska, obviously targeting um, the Seattle market uh, and Virgin targeting the California market. Uh, we talked about it on Snapchat with Snapchat, you know, really tailoring the product uh, after some wandering in the woods for a while um, to high schoolers in Orange County uh, and uh, and with, with Trulia and, and also with Amazon. You know, Amazon was just books until long after the ipo um and uh and and se- several of those companies you know amazon obviously and, and potentially snapchat too have gone on to become huge companies that do lots of things and have many different products and target 
uh, diverse user bases, but they all started with that core uh, solving a very specific problem for a very specific audience. Yeah, and relating this to uh, network effects, like like we just mentioned, um, what's not in this list but easily could be is Facebook. And you think about the, yeah, uh, the, issue, the issue of the cold start problem. Like if they launch Facebook to the world, it would have been no fun because let's even say there's 10 people in every city on it. I mean, that's, that's, you're just not going to know anyone, maybe one person. And uh, by launching university by university and focusing on just Harvard first, you take advantage of those, those pre-existing networks to make sure that there's, uh, there's density among your customer base. Yeah. One, you can provide, you can, you can you know, do the Paul Graham things that don't scale to get yeah. those nodes on the, on the small niche network and then grow from there. Not and, I, and actually, I think in our, well, uh, let's, let's, let's jump to the third theme that we discussed four times this year. Uh, and I think the three of these kind of form a trinity that, you know, if you are working with startups, starting a startup or working in technology generally, you know, you could do far worse than to keep these three things in mind. Um, and the third one is, is growth culture. Um, and what we mean by that is, is the discipline of growth within uh, startups and technology. And, and it really started with PayPal. And that was the first episode where we discussed it of um, using real data from the marketplace and from usage of your product to iterate what you're doing and to iterate your product towards the signal of how people are using that data. Hmm. Um, so we talked about that on, on PayPal, Snapchat, Next, and uh, the Amazon IPO. Um, but I think the interplay of these three things, you know, one, you know, keeping in mind the power of network effects. But the problem with that is that it's they're very hard to achieve because you need a lot of scale. And then companies that have achieved them have huge defensibility. So how do you attack that? You know, you start small with a very specific niche, you know, that's underserved uh, and tar by whatever solutions are in the marketplace today, target them. And then, and then you, you know, use the discipline of growth uh, to, um, to be honest with yourself about what's working, what are people using, and um, you take it one step at a time. Boy, and I'll tell you, uh, in looking at, at growth culture and thinking about the way PayPal did it, when they released um, you know, a product that, that wasn't really resonating and then they found you know, where are people using this product and it turned out, oh wow, like a, an incredible amount of uh, transactions are actually happening over um, you know, on eBay, because of right? eBay sales, yeah. Or you look at like I mean, uh, the initial product was for Palm Pilots, right? <laughs> right, right, right. And you look at like uh, Twitch, and they realize you know it's a general purpose thing, but wow, people are really using this thing around gaming. So let's focus on that. We've totally discovered that with uh, with PSL and Madrona Labs companies, where it's so important to like get in market with something and and just be like a player in that space to have something to talk to partners and customers to and, and ways to get actual data back from the way that people are using your thing. And and it's just funny how companies either narrow or, or you know, move to an adjacent market. And, uh, and it's so important to get in the space, have a product and market, be able to learn, and then you'll find what the real opportunity is from there. Because it's always, you know, there's varying degrees of how similar it is to your original idea. Um, that ends up working, but um, you know it's never exactly that, and you need customer data to know. It's a, you know we didn't plan it this way, but uh, um, you know as we've been talking about these themes, I almost see it as like this this kind of trinity of of the the themes that we talked about four times throughout the year, being how you you know sort of the playbook of when you're actually building and running a startup, what you work on, and then the meta theme is aggregation theory on top of that because the output of 
if you do these three <laughs> things is you'll create a superior customer experience. Um, that really is the goal of, you know, starting small, focusing, solving a specific problem better than anyone else for a specific customer, uh, and then growing from there. And, and, uh, and then network effects layering on top of that of making the product even better and providing defensibility. <laughs> Add those together, you get aggregation theory. You could do a lot worse than using these as your checklist when starting or pitching or refining an idea. Um, you know, as like, am I going to be able to create a, a successful company or at least uh, convince other people that my company could be successful? This sure feels like a decent, uh, decent place to start. Yeah, unfortunately, um, uh, nobody has yet invented a magic button to translate theory into practice in the technology <laughs> world, <laughs> no, but uh, that's what makes it fun. Yep, yep, yep. All right, moving on to uh, things we've discussed uh, three times. Uh, the flywheel is, uh, is a big one with Lucasfilm, yep. Marvel, and the, uh, and the Amazon IPO episode. And, uh, um, you know, I think I look at a flywheel as a, a, a sort of a very specific type of network effect where... Um, any uh, any increase in one piece of your business adds momentum and, and grows an additional part of your business. Amazon and, and Disney, of course, being classic examples of this. Disney with um, you know movies that feed into theme parks, that feed into TV shows, that feed into merchandise, and then Amazon with uh, um, the ability to create uh, a, a better experience through lower cost, building more customer trust, driving more traffic, and then their ability to continue and grow and scale from there. So, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, Amazon is definitely a, a two-sided uh, network effect, um, or I guess now with AWS, uh, <laughs> all of the different businesses that Amazon has multi-sided, um, but, uh, uh, you know, for them, the flywheel is about adding to one side of the network effect and then that pushing the other side. Um, you know, Disney and, and uh, the companies they've acquired in their flywheel don't know how much it's about a network effect but it's um it almost makes me think more of like economies of scale and sort mm. of old world businesses um but i i guess you could argue to the extent that um to the extent that people come that that consumers come to see uh uh content that the more consumers they have coming to see disney content the more they can channel those consumers into other Disney content. And then, so you could, you could think about it as kind of a content consumer uh, network effect. Yeah. Um, but it's not as, not as strong, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And it, it, it's funny, in, in thinking about the best way to define uh, flywheels or, or potentially if you're uh, in an existing business to, f to see flywheel opportunities in the business, um, I think a good way to define it might be what... Uh, does your existing asset of, you know, business line, customer um, capabilities, all those things uh, allow you to do that uh, is an unfair advantage that people uh, yeah. starting from a cold start wouldn't be able to do. So there's sort of criteria one. And then criteria two is, does the existence of that new thing that you do feedback and grow your, your original business? So, yeah, you know, like, yeah. Disney, you know, uh, somebody trying to create a, uh, a caricature, you know, like a toy business uh, doesn't have Disney's IP, so they'd fall on their face. And so criteria one is like, boy, you can really bootstrap a merchandise business. And then criteria two is, of course, more people are going to go want to see, um, want to go see the movies and, and visit the parks if they have the toys.
Yeah, and this makes me think about Airbnb and what they're doing now with launching experiences uh, and blending mm. both the lodging and experiences into trips. You know, lots of people have tried to solve the kind of you know, destination services and travel for a long time, but Airbnb has a complete unfair advantage in that they have travelers who are coming and using their site to book lodging um, and are especially travelers who are oftentimes looking for experiences at the destinations they're going to. Um, and so they can feed that into the experiences product. And then as that product matures and potentially someday people will be coming to Airbnb specifically for, specifically for experiences, then they can funnel those people into booking lodging. So it, we could see, you could paint what they're trying to do now in, in a flywheel light. Yeah, good point. All right. Next one uh, that we also discussed three times this year was as this idea that as a particular technology generation matures. So um, and we saw this with with the PC generation, uh, with the mobile generation um, and uh, and potentially with with future um, technology generations to come. Maybe we'll talk about this in 2017, um, 2017 themes. Uh, but the, the the basis of competition moves up the stack throughout the generation uh, and, and you know, kind of starts at the hardware level and then moves up to the operating system level and then to the application layer level. And then uh, eventually, like we're seeing now in, in mobile and, and on the web into the service layer level, which is cross uh, cross application. Um, so we talked about this in the Accompli episode, in the Android episode, where I think you can see it most clearly. Um, and in the Push Pop Prep Press episode, which became Facebook Instant Articles. Yeah, I really like this one. And, and we talked about, uh, it was like not exactly the same, but in, in that uh, episode about uh, Rightly and Google Docs, um, yeah. we, were, we were talking about, uh, you know, as, um, as productivity moved toward the cloud from, uh, from desktop software, you know, like who there's a low end disruption thing that happened where where Google decided that they were going to create, you know, not as good tools for the professional but uh you know very good for people that wanted to do sort of lightweight editing in their browser and then that began a total arms race of of wow there actually there is a services and cloud based uh productivity market here and you you mm -hmm. you don't necessarily discover those things without somebody um building an, an inferior product further up the stack first yep which is a great transition to our last, uh, our last three-point theme uh, or three times theme uh, for 2016, which was business model-based disruption, which we talked about on the Rightly and Google Docs episode, and on the Waze episode, and on the Android episode. But um, you know, anytime uh, <laughs> if you're an incumbent in an area and somebody pops up that can offer the same product as you and make money. Uh, by via a different business model, you should be very, very worried. Yes. <laughs> and this is classic Clayton Christensen here. It very much falls in the same sort of fear as the Jeff Bezos quote, your margin is my opportunity. And uh, yep. in, in this method, it's more like your business model is my opportunity. Because if, if you're able to leverage something like how Rightly was able, I'm sorry, how uh, Waze was able to, to crowdsource all the data, suddenly it's like, hey, I've got this huge asset that costs you money for free, and now I get to decide yep. what to do with that. Yep, um, and we'll see this all, you know, Amazon is uh, one of the best in the world at this, and uh, 
actually, this is part of one of my carve outs coming up. Um, uh, not Amazon video. My carve out is not Amazon video, but you see it happening there. I mean, um, Netflix is a great, great company and valued very highly right now. But uh, Amazon video has improved so much throughout 2016 and it's free with Prime. Uh, and you have to pay eight bucks a month or whatever it is for Netflix now. It's, you know, it's a different business model. It is. It is. It is. All right. Well, we've got some things that uh, are discussed, you know, tw twice and, and once throughout the, the course of the year. But um, we're going to put those in the show notes. So if you're if you're curious about um, other tech themes that uh, um, were were prevalent in 2016, at least through through our lens, uh, those will be in the show notes. And uh, we're going to move on to talk about um, some themes that we think are going to be key in 2017. So, uh, David, do you want to do you want to yeah. start us off with one of your your yeah I will well and um, uh, <laughs> I'm laughing and uh, I'm sure longtime listeners of the show will be laughing as well but my but the first one I wanted to talk about is um, I think aggregation theory is going to continue to be critically important and um, uh, one of if not the clearest lens through which to view. Uh, opportunities and challenges and disruption that's happening, um, not only in, in tech going into 2017, but, but I think in, in the world broadly too, in society. I mean, uh, Ben Thompson has had um, some great posts, really great posts in the, the back half of the year here, um, talking about uh, how you can apply that lens, the aggregation theory lens to looking at uh, politics uh, and you know, obviously the, the U.S. Election, presidential election in 2016, um, but uh, the media as well. Um, and I, I, to me personally, I, I actually see it becoming more important in 2017. Um, and, and thinking about sort of beyond just the traditional IT sector of tech, um, you know consumer technology and enterprise software technology. Um, but what, is it, what does it look like when, when the dynamics of aggregation theory and the, um, the both opportunities and, and uh, implications of internet dynamics get trained on all industries? Um, you know, we're seeing it with driving right now, which um, if I'm not getting my facts wrong, which is entirely possible that I could be, I believe driving jobs are either the number one yeah, or certainly top one. five yeah, category of jobs in the U.S. And um, it's like two or three know, million uh, 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 jobs are directly related to the uh, logistics industry. So it's kind of trucking and, so the, and coordinating yep, trucking. trucking. And, and then you add, you know, I don't know how many Uber drivers there are. If you add up Uber and Lyft and taxi drivers, that's another huge amount of people. Um, and all of a sudden, you're going to have a superior, <laughs> a superior customer experience through self-driving, um, you know, technology that's going to come on board in the next few years. Um, I think everybody, uh, in some form or fashion, is going to have to come to grips with the implications of what this means. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh... It's pretty interesting. I, I um, <laughs> well, this segues nicely into one of mine, and I think uh, I was going to talk about three things that I think will happen in 2017, then three things that 
um, I think will begin to happen, but are really, you know, 2018, 2019, uh, and 2020 themes. But this totally gets into uh, one of mine, which is autonomous vehicles start to make people more serious about universal basic income. And mm-hmm. um, I was having this discussion with a friend recently where um, let's start with this hypothetical world that is we can basically produce uh, in a very sci-fi way um, our basic means of living for free. We create technology that is efficient enough that, you know, let's say that we can have farms that have all autonomous equipment that are powered by solar arrays of, you know, renewable free energy um, and can deliver uh, all these ingredients to, to, to people uh, basically free of charge. So we have clean water, clean food, um, entirely for free, and and uh, maybe it's even possible that, that transportation is there too. So, you know, then there's things like, sh- you know, shelter, uh, other, other basic things that you need to live that, that aren't free. But we're, we're going to start trending toward this world where um, we could provide those things for everyone. Um, but the thing that will happen much sooner than that is that um, we'll be able to provide these things with very little jobs. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so, you know, if you look at like the industrial revolution, the argument that everyone always makes is, well, you know, technology eliminates jobs, but it also creates new jobs. And I think in this era of, uh, of autonomous, um, you know, autonomous vehicles, autonomous machines, uh, and, uh, and, you know, leveraging machine learning, the difference is that y- you don't create as, as many jobs as you eliminate. And that might be okay in the extreme long run where we do have a uh, societal structure in place that, you know, we, we take care of everyone that um, doesn't have a job because, like, nobody needs to work. Like, let's imagine a world where everybody gets to live without working and uh, then we need some, you know, some uh, ways to distribute that we, that wealth out to people. But what we yeah, we also need something for people to do when they're not working. Yeah, boy, that's like that's an that's evolved what VR civilization is for, problem, yeah. right? Of uh, of uh, you know figuring out what to do with your time in an era where we don't work. But I think there's a, yeah. an immediate pressing problem, which is um, companies will get extremely wealthy by having really fat profit margins on um, being able to achieve great value for, you know, tons and tons of people through aggregation theory. Yep. Um, yep. And those people will be completely served, but it will be, you know, the same price that we've been paying for things, except that lots of people don't have jobs. And there's going to be yeah. this kind of scary valley where we eliminate the jobs long before we have any sort of like support redistribution system. Yeah, there's, um, well, a couple of thoughts. I mean, I think one of the I, I think what we're talking about is a a consequence of aggregation theory where, you know, if you believe it, uh, that we're entering a world across all industries now where a superior customer experience becomes a winner-take-all business, mm-hmm. you know, that means there is a winner and lots of losers. <laughs> and, um, you know, as opposed to where you have equilibrium in other industries now, such as the auto industry, where there are you know, 10, 20, or the airline industry, uh, 10, 20 firms uh, that are all employing lots of people. Um, and maybe they're, you know, they are not as profitable as firms as a winner take all business, mm-hmm. um, but they are uh, at least providing jobs. Um, uh, so, so this is definitely, you know, as far as, as far as I know, nobody has solved 
what this means, you know, how to deal with this on a societal level. Um, but but what you were saying after that reminds me of um, there was a great, I believe this was in Wired. I'm going to find this article. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, when right before the election, Obama gave a few interviews um, where he talked a lot about tech and sort of, you know, mused on what he saw as the biggest challenges, you know, for the world and for America going forward now um, and called on the tech industry to respond to them. Um, and and the, the first one was was inequality. And uh, this piece, they had, they had six, you know, well-known figures from the tech industry sort of respond to each of these things, the challenges that Obama called out. And I believe, yes, it was Tim O'Reilly, um, the who, founder of O'Reilly Media, um, answered the inequality topic. And, and, and he said exactly what you're talking about, Ben, which is that Silicon Valley often forgets that um, it takes consumer uh, surplus and people with jobs who have disposable income to then spend money money on Silicon Valley Silicon Valley products and technology. Yeah. Um, so you're always kind of eating your own tail in uh, in the economy. Um, and to the extent that uh, we put more people out of jobs as an industry, then there's going to be far less consumption of our own products as an industry. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny thinking about uh, it's, just not, it's not as much funny as sort of haunting. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it's uh, it's ironic, but um, but not uh, not in a happy way. Yeah, so it, I guess like you know, technology is this interesting sword that has to be um, responsibly wielded. Like you, you, we've talked about this in the past that um, the purpose of technology is to um, make things easier so that it requires less effort from people, and when you um, run that to its extreme, it's that you need less people to do the jobs that, you know, that, that create the value for people, um, for, you know, the consumers yeah. of those things. And I mean, this is one of the themes that we talked about, um, the Facebook uh, throughout IPO. the year that, that we, yep, that technology is a lever. Um, you know, it doesn't mean technology is like, uh, not like it's Excalibur, right? It's not like it's a, you know, a sword for good, like right. it magnifies what is going on. Uh, whether that's you know good or evil or or indifferent, it just magnifies the consequences. Yeah. So in in having this ability to uh, um, you know create incredible uh, automation and, and incredible value without human input, um, I don't think we've necessarily figured out what a, a societal structure is in a world where technology is so powerful. And I think a lot of the the things that we uh, take for granted in a, a society that is a democratic republic and uh, it has a capitalist economy um, function pretty well in a, a world where aggregation theory and automation is not so powerful. But I think we could be forced to do some serious rethinking um, in the coming decade as, as these new harsh realities come to light and think about like, boy... Uh, if we just um, pure capitalism may not actually work anymore, or I, I think I'm, I'm venturing into dangerous yeah. territory there. But the, the, <laughs> we are. Well, we're, we're going to have to call uh, my wife Jenny onto the show as a guest expert for this, uh, as a, um, she's a, 
a PhD in uh, in the humanities and thinks a lot about this. But you know, I, I think channeling her, she would say, you know, we have been in a late capitalist world uh, for a long time. I mean, at least since the end of World War II. Um, and this is kind of the hallmark of late capitalism, uh, which is that you have uh, rapidly increasing wealth inequality, um, and then the uh, <clears throat> the theory uh, is that it ends in a in a communist or socialist revolution. Um, uh, we'll see. <laughs> Not predicting that that will necessarily right. happen. Right, right. Um, but that, but that's the direction that you know. If you look at like Europe, that that um, uh, that political economies there have been moving towards mm-hmm. over the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. But it's also a world where innovation isn't encouraged as much as it is in a purely capitalist society. Yeah, uh, maybe. I, I, I think then you start diving into what are human motives besides uh, economic right, ones. Right. Like, you know, if you look at like the reason uh, Daniel Pink has done a bunch of research on this, like what makes people happy in their jobs, it's not really money, it's autonomy, mastery and purpose above once you hit a certain dollar amount of, of sustaining yourself. And if you think about, you know, that on, on one hand, and you, you look at sort of like, um, the things that motivate people in general, you know, uh, money, uh, power, uh, love. There, there's a lot of like very core um, human things that we often like wrap up with how much money someone makes, and and people often yeah. define themselves by by their job and their value in the world is so tied to that. And I think we might start seeing. Uh, and maybe not in 2017, and maybe not for for a while. But <laughs> once we get to a kind of a post scarcity society, is uh, a place where we start defining ourselves and and, uh, and doing things, yeah, yeah think, in, in, by different measurements. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I'm catching myself sort of falling into a trap that I think a lot of people and a lot of economists have for a long time. I've been um, uh, reading a bunch of economists lately and uh, realizing that you know, classical and traditional macroeconomics uh, is kind of like voodoo, right? Like, uh, and, and not effective voodoo, like it's really deeply flawed. And some of the, one of the assumptions that is really flawed in it is that every individual is A, a rational actor, um, B, has perfect information, and C, is motivated by by money and wealth. Um and that's all of those three of those things have been proven to be just not true. Um, are, are you reading Kahneman right now? <laughs> uh, I have not yet started reading The Undoing Project, uh, but it's on my list. Um, um, but uh, but no, I've been listening. I've been reading. Um, I've been reading uh, Tyler Cowen's uh, uh, blog, The Marginal Revolution. Um, and uh, and a lot of the links and work that he uh, work that he links to and posts there, um, and he's sort of one of the the poster children for uh, the new breed of of economists that uh, that reject a lot of these classical assumptions. Oh, that's cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Well, should we move on to um, so uh, uh, one that I wanted to bring up uh, on a. Um, sort of looking more on the bright side note of all of this uh, that we talked about on the on the Facebook IPO episode is I'm hopeful that 2017 sees at least starts to see the beginning of the end of this stay private longer theme mm. um, and and startups uh, private technology companies delaying their IPOs indefinitely um, 
you know, it sure looks like we're going to see a Snap Inc. IPO in the first half, maybe even the first quarter of 2017. Um, and I'm really, uh, really excited and hopeful to see what that does for the market. Um, you know, lots of questions to be answered both about the company and, and what valuation um, they end up getting both at pricing and how the stock trades afterwards. But I hope that, you know, I, I'm encouraged by um, by their uh, courage, again, to quote unquote, word of 2017, of 2016. Um, thank you, Phil in, Schiller. In doing this. Yeah, thank you, Phil Schiller. Um, so I hope we see more companies um, that are building long-term sustainable businesses um, get the courage to go public. Yeah, and it's it's not clear to me if it's like like courage, like they're taking some big risk necessarily that um, being private wouldn't make them risk or, or that like they're doing it out of some sense of uh, like it's probably like just overwhelmingly the right thing for them to do so they're doing it but regardless of, of motivation um, it sure seems like it's better for everyone to have companies IPOing you know at or before the five-year mark and a- after you know somewhere between like three and six years rather than waiting yep. eight to ten because it just yeah, I, we talked about this on the Facebook episode but like it lets the American public get in on the growth and wealth that is created from um, late stage American innovation and and I think it also you know I think this is something that uh, don't get me wrong, Wall Street has its own set of issues and the short-term focus on short-term earnings results uh, can be a bad thing for companies of all types. Um, But I think going public, it forces a level of accountability and um, and, uh, being forced to see the real picture reflection of your business um, that I think in the long term will be good for companies. You know, we like we talked about on the Facebook, you know, episode. It was I, I really think not being there at the time, but but doing all the research and talking through the story. I think Facebook going public forced the company to recognize how big a problem they had in mobile and to um, and to move uh, at warp speed to fix it. Yeah, that's a great point. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. 
So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. All right. I've, I've got another couple that, uh, that go together. Yeah. So do it. The first one is the commoditization of basic machine learning. I think, um, you know, there's, mm-hmm. the, I, I am, let me just create a disclaimer that says I am not a machine learning practitioner, uh, or a data scientist, nor do I have formal education on the topic. Uh, I am a curious person in tech. And so I've been doing as much reading as I possibly can and talking to some people that are, that are uh, uh, a lot smarter than I am in, in these things and trying to understand what does the landscape look like. And what's become really apparent is that a lot of these things are 50 to 70-year-old technologies, or I guess uh, really like math papers, that only now are, are um, coming to fruition and, and actually being applied because... Number one, we have the hardware to do so, uh, not only with just cheap CPUs and GPUs, but with actual like Google's creating tensor processing units that, that are um, more effective at doing the sort of math quickly and efficiently that you need to do for, for machine learning. Um, so Plus that, you have access to elastically scalable clouds. Exactly, um, exactly. You, know, you don't have to build tons of data centers. You can use S3 yep. to store all your data. Yep. And uh, yeah, the, so variety of factors can, uh, contributing to this. There are tens or hundreds of uh, defined machine learning methodologies. And I think something that, that is pretty interesting is like there's about, there's less than five that are actually used right now uh, by a lot of people and have, have actually had a lot of research on them, a lot of like time in practice. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that like, relative to a decade ago when there was still this green, you know, lots of green space of like, this is an emerging field. It's been researched for a while, but not commercialized. Um, We don't know which things work best. Now there's like a fairly understood scope and scale and understand of what they can be used for, for the, the, you know, few basic types uh, or few most used types. And what we've seen is the platformization of those. So if, if you have, Mm -hmm. uh, machine learning tasks to do at your company that are not like wildly different than something somebody else is doing or don't require any sort of like new research or actual mathematicians to be, um, you, you know, hammering on a methodology that's, that's not, um, well understood yet. These are often available from, um, from Google, from Amazon, from Microsoft as, uh, as cloud services that, that are built on TensorFlow or at, at Google or any of the other, uh, um, platforms at these other companies. And so what you see is like companies that might be like 30, 40 people don't really need to build out a, a data science and machine learning practice in the company. They just need to find a way to create really clean data um, and then feed it into these sort of like off the shelf systems that, that the, the big companies have created. Yep. And um, that makes me really excited as an investor because it's going to enable so many more companies uh, in so many more industries to take advantage of these tools. And, and I think it's going to, you know, <laughs> I think this will be one of the enabling factors that further pushes aggregation theory out into the world, you know, beyond the traditional borders of 
the quote unquote tech industry um, that we that we talked about earlier. Yeah, and that that brings up a um, the second point that I I have is you know the reason that uh, these larger companies are incentivized to make these things available is that the value once you hit a certain kind of scale and, and understanding and saturation of these things the value isn't the algorithm th themselves the value is all about the data and so yes. these companies with uh with large sets of of data um, google facebook microsoft amazon etc um, can solve problems that startups just can't and there's a total flywheel effect of you know once they once they have like just incredible critical masses of data and and have the um, you know the machine learning algorithms, kind of, uh, and, and practices built in house to really uh, be competent at at turning that data into, you know, new products and new services. They're just able to to be the best at things that startups have no chance at. So there's a category of of uh, machine learning problems that, like you're saying, David, are are. Um, very exciting as an investor to new startups because they can use these off the shelves to shelf tools But there's a whole other category of things that that you know the the big tech companies with lots of data can do that No one else can yeah, I think well I, I'm going to agree with you with a caveat on this one uh, and more to come You know on my front in, in 2017 on this idea, but um, but my view at least right now on this question is I think the key to the data is it's data about your customers and your domain and people who could be your customers um, and the interaction between those customers and what your product is. So yes, I agree that if you have multiple companies doing the same thing, the company that has the most data and uh, and the most the most robust and uh, rich data is going to be able to create the the most superior customer experience and win via aggregation theory, which we've talked about ad nauseum. But to the extent you're doing something slightly different, like I don't think it it pivots very well, you know. So um, that gives me some hope for opportunities for startups. Yeah, maybe. Like I think there's this category of things. So I I, I see you. Uh, I think there's definitely a category of things around personalization where uh, all, all those points are, are like spot on, right? Anything that requires lots of information about you to, uh, to bootstrap from, for example, like showing you the photos of your best memories of the last five years when you were in motion, you know, or some like queries like that. But like uh, Google has the most photos of cats. So anything that relies on a very accurate cat recognizer, like you're not going to beat Google at that. And so I, I think about like these companies have the largest data sets of like a lot of things. And so I think you're right that like outside of the domain of things that these companies capture, like, uh, you know, you can imagine like flow meters on plumbing, like none of those big tech mm -hmm. companies have the data on flow meters on plumbing, but anything that's like, photo related or conversation related or um you know data sets that people create in interactions with themselves and the world uh is really like locked up there and i think you're there's probably interesting opportunities to try and go find data sets elsewhere and figure out uh what value can be created from those that that those companies don't have i think that's right but but i guess i guess the perspective i come at it from is if you think about all the uh, activities in our economy and in our lives, like there is a <laughs> infinite spectrum of of 
products and services that can be built that are very different. And, and I guess the excitement I come at it from is that you think about Google, you know, and, and the things you were saying, um, you know, understanding cats. And, and I do think machine vision is going to be perhaps the biggest category of machine learning um, value creation in the coming years. Um, but like, you know, what about a company that uh, I work with um, that we're investors in in Madrona is a company called Booster Fuels, and they deliver gas to your car. Um, and uh, you wouldn't think that that would be driven by machine learning, but it actually turns out that, you know, the the route that trucks take to deliver gas is, is hugely important. And the more efficient you get at that, uh, the better your mm. business, your product will be and the better your business will be. Um, you know, Google can't do that. <laughs> uh, so I just think there's... Or at least they don't have an unfair advantage in doing that. They don't have an unfair advantage in doing that, yeah. Um, uh, and even Uber doesn't have an unfair advantage in doing that. Um, so I think there's a big C out there to fish in. Cool. Yeah, I see you there. All right. Uh, last one that I had, uh, more um, more fun one to for me at least to end on, is uh, I think 2017 is uh, I, I'm going back to the um, niche uh, uh, sort of a theme we didn't talk about in the preamble, um, but is you know, what do native experiences quote unquote look like in new mediums? Um, and I think 2017 could be a really interesting year for VR um, and, and the whole VR AR industry. And I think we'll get a lot more signal this year on whether um, VR and AR is going to be a mainstream industry anytime soon or a large niche industry or none of the above. And uh, I'm hopeful that by this time next year, we'll have a lot more information on that front. And to the extent that it either becomes mainstream or a large niche industry, um, I'm really excited to see what native quote unquote experiences look like in um, in the VR world. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Because it's funny. It's like, you remember the first Steve Jobs demo of the iPhone when he pulls up the New York Times and he, there's no such thing as a yeah. mobile optimized site yet. And he double taps yeah. to zoom in on all the articles and you're looking at like a desktop rendered version of the Times. Yep. It's like, what's the equivalent there? Like, what's the, what are the native VR experiences that are, are uh, right now, like, we're so excited to like, oh my God, we're playing the, a similar video game, but in VR. Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of the games you're seeing in VR right now are those, you know, oh man, this game that we've always known and loved would be so cool if we could do it in VR, <laughs> right, like Minecraft right. or whatever. Like, but what are the, and I think this is just where the creativity of entrepreneurs is going to come out. Um, It'll be things that you and I haven't imagined yet. Um, and uh, having done a lot of VR experiences myself, I, I would imagine a lot of our listeners either haven't done many or haven't done any yet. Um, it's very much a, a bleeding edge niche technology right now, mm -hmm. but you can see so much potential in the immersiveness of the experience. You know, it's, it's like the anti-mobile in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, right now it's a largely tethered experience that's you can't you don't you certainly can't move around much outside of a very controlled environment. You know the the best VR experiences right now, um, which still have lots of problems with them, but where you know as opposed to on a mobile phone where you're getting sixteen thousand notifications every minute mm -hmm. and jumping between context all the time, you know you really do start to forget that you're in a simulation and just get totally immersed in what you're doing. 
Yeah. Well, David, I would argue I'm frequently completely immersed in my phone and not paying attention to what's around me. So. <laughs> it's all a question of what context you're thinking about. <laughs> Amen. Well, hey, I've got I've got one more, and it's more of a question. Yeah, do it. I'm, I'm curious what you think because it for how political we could get on this show, we pretty we stay pretty far away from it, even though we sort of discuss societal issues. And um, I was trying to think through, you know, we've been in this era of rising abundance of both information and physical products uh, over the last several decades. And I was trying to figure out, like, do is it possible that we start moving to an era of scarcity of physical products where mm. um, in, in years past, you know, it's 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 uh, um, it's been incredibly inexpensive to manufacture overseas. And, you know, that's the reason why we can get an iPhone for $600 when it's this incredible magical device. And uh, with the combination of uh, a rising middle class in China, you know, uh, additional countries where a lot of this very inexpensive manufacturing is getting done, uh, becoming more of a, a, a developed, uh, developed nation. And then also, it's hard to predict what's going to happen, but all indications lead toward um, it we may have uh, a little bit more restrictions and, and tariffs on trade um, to encourage mm -hmm. uh, things to be built in America under the Trump administration. I'm curious, e even if that doesn't come to fruition, do you think that, that we uh, start to shift back toward a, an era where goods are more expensive and we have, uh, have less physical goods? Yeah, I don't know. I hadn't, um, I hadn't quite thought about that. Um, it's really hard to imagine that uh, yeah. just from a consumer perspective, um, which does make me wonder if it happened, what would the political reaction be? I mean, let's let's say uh, can let's assume that um, if more barriers to trade get enacted, that a consequence of that is that the price of physical goods goes up significantly and less people are able to afford them like. How would people vote in reaction to that? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> if uh, uh, if you can't buy your big screen uh, anymore, yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's uh, at the same time like we also live in this moment where um, you know one of the books I read this year was one of the top selling books of 2016 was that uh, the life changing magic of tidying up the Japanese art of decluttering mm. uh, all about removing physical things that there's there's too much uh many people have too many physical things in their life and you need to remove them so if prices go up will it solve that yeah <laughs> i don't know and i can't i can't tell if there's a cultural i'm trying to decide if i live too much in a bubble but it sure seems like there's a trend toward uh owning less things just just to um you know try and be more minimalist and uh especially with the the shift toward um more people being in in urban environments and having smaller spaces that we uh, we may just start to see this from a cultural desire perspective too. Yeah, I mean, no question. I think one thing that um, seems very clear to me that you mentioned is urbanization, um, regardless of what happens with globalization and trade, um, I think urbanization is going to continue to be a very, very powerful force um, throughout the rest of this decade and, and likely into the next um, mm -hmm. you know, so many, um, for, for a whole variety of reasons, so many people in, in this country and around the world are, are migrating to cities and the, you know, the net migration to cities that I think is happening, um, is gonna, gonna force a lot of this change. You know, um, the, uh, 
the, the big mansions in the suburbs, you know, aren't what a lot of people aspire to anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a great point. Uh, let alone, let alone the fancy cars that you drive to get back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. With that, uh, do you want to move on to, uh, to carve outs? Yeah. So for carve outs for this episode, since it's the end of the year, um, we thought that we would each do uh, a carve out across um, a whole bunch of uh, basically all the categories that we talked about throughout the year. So we have books, articles, podcasts, uh, music, uh, TV and movies and apps. Um, should we start with uh, uh, should we start with books? Yeah, let's do it. I've got one that I'm rereading now and I, I don't think I've done it as a carve out before. Um, but it's one of these books that I probably should read every year. And, uh, you know, I'm just, just reading for the second time now, but it's called On Writing Well. It is a, uh, kind of a spiritual supplement to the, uh, E.B. White's The Elements, or Element, yeah, Elements of Style. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it's this really great, very enjoyable to read book that harps on the importance of writing in plain English uh, using one word when you can instead of two or three or ten, um, eliminating uh, kind of colloquial phrases that are, are um, you know, not adding anything to the piece and, uh, and really decluttering your writing and having clarity of thought. And one of the things I want to get better at in, in 2017 is, is just being a better writer and writing with, with more clarity and purpose and, uh, and, and being more pithy. And uh, it's just a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal guide to, to doing exactly that. I've, uh, I've had that recommended to me several times over the years. I've never read it. Uh, and um, I, I got to get that and, and, and read it. Uh, very few things uh, that we can invest in that'll um, do more for our, uh, our communication than, than learning to be a better writer. Something I definitely, definitely need to keep working on. Okay, for my book, um, for the carve out, I uh, actually broke it into two. I did nonfiction and fiction. So for nonfiction, um, The Creative Habit by Twyla Tharp, which was a book that I actually got a long time ago and had been meaning to read, had started, uh, never finished, and I finally picked it back up again and finished it this year. Um, really great. Uh, Twyla is a. Um, American choreographer and dancer, um, and just has, uh, it's a really creative work itself, but a lot of great advice for how to think creatively and, um, structure your life. Uh, if you are someone from an entrepreneur to an executive to an actual artist, um, who needs to think creatively in your work. And then my fiction for the year is actually a whole, uh, multiple series of books, but I finally read, uh, the entire, uh, Isaac Asimov, uh, canon. Uh, not not all the books that he wrote, but oh, nice. um, the Robot series, the Empire series, and the Foundation series, uh, which are all separate series. But uh, later in his life, he wrote other books to fill in the gaps and tie them all together. Really fun and uh, also a great a great read as we head into this world, as we've been talking about on this episode of artificial intelligence and robotics potentially coming along with that. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of his work has been a, an inspiration to actual innovators and inventors um, throughout the years. So highly, highly recommend it, all of the series that he's written. Awesome. And actually, that, that kind of leads into my, my article. Yeah, it's uh, Re- Religion for the Non-Religious, which is a Wait But Why column. And, oh, yeah, uh, so good. 
yeah, really, really great. Like talks about, um, you know, level one thinking, which is more like, uh, uh, instinctual level two thinking, which is more empathetic level three thinking, which is like thinking about the whole universe as we know it and being just floored by our place in it. And then level four thinking, which is, we don't even know what we don't know. And it's kind of a, a an interesting like way to tie, um, everything together from, why am I acting so silly right now all the way to what are the bounds of the known universe? Yeah. Um, such a great blog. Wait, uh, my article is a piece in New York times that came out a few weeks ago, um, about the, uh, alleged, um, uh, activities by Russian hackers in hacking the DNC, uh, and the RNC. And then their use of that information uh, to try and influence the outcome of the U.S. elections. Um, this is a really great, long reporting piece, uh, and they sort of deliberately make the analogy in the beginning of the piece between Watergate and the hacking of the DNC, the physical hacking of the DNC headquarters for information during Watergate to, um, to the digital hacking now. But why I thought it was super cool is they make the argument in the piece that if Russia uh, did, in fact, do this, that this is actually moving beyond espionage into, you know, a, a trying to influence outcomes of elections in another country is a, a warlike act. Um, and it made me think a lot, of, regardless of what you think about this particular situation, about uh, disruption uh, and evolving technology as regards to war, too. You know, um, uh, if this is, uh, this might be the way that, or at least one of the ways that war is conducted now, uh, as opposed to, you know, tanks and planes and bombs. Um, super interesting to think about disruption of, uh, at that level too. Um, and also relevant to what we were talking about earlier in this show. Wow. Yeah. Totally ties it together. Yep. Speaking of being all over the place, my uh, podcast recommendation is the episode of the Ezra Klein show with Patrick Collison, the, uh, co-founder and CEO of Stripe. And uh, uh, fascinating on a lot of levels. It, it truly is all over the place in a lot of the um, the best ways that you would hope. Super intellectual on on technology, politics, philosophy, and uh, highly recommend checking it out. <laughs> that is so funny because the Ezra Klein show was my podcast as well. <laughs> Fortunately, I had two episodes to recommend. One was that that show with Patrick Collison, which is a great, great episode. Um, the other one, I think, is. The one that they that uh, Ezra did immediately following that episode, either immediately or two episodes later, with Tanahisi Coates, um, completely different uh, type of person and, and different world. Uh, Coates is an author and a journalist, um, but also very very great episode and worth listening to. I agree. <laughs> Music. Music. So uh, we've been riding this really highbrow intellectual train, so I'm going to bring it back down and declare 2016 the year of Justin Bieber. His last, uh, <laughs> his album of mega hits technically came out in November of 2016, but uh, boy, did they have staying power and stayed snappy and hot and released fresh singles all year. So I unapologetically go Justin Bieber. <laughs> That's great. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm also unapologetically going to go back to, I think I mentioned this an episode or two ago, um, Jenny and I went to a Stevie Nicks concert this year and it was so good. I've been a <laughs> huge Fleetwood Mac fan for a long, long time. And, um, uh, but in 2016, I have discovered Stevie Nicks's solo career too, even beyond, you know, edge of 17 and the, the famous hits. Um, she, uh, 
she really is an amazing artist uh, and, and both her, her own solo albums and her collaborations, especially with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Also Prince. Uh, I didn't know until I went to her show that Prince played the guitar on her hit Stand Back. Uh, oh, no way. They had a, they had a um, really close relationship. Um, so that's my, that's my music for, for 2016. Awesome. Uh, so my TV or movie is uh, Westworld, the uh, HBO show. I mentioned it as my carve out a few episodes ago, but um, that was the, the piece of entertainment of 2016 for me. It was so thought provoking, worth watching twice, worth listening to podcasts about, worth talking to your friends about and, and reading the subreddit and diving in. It is J.J. Uh, Abrams and Jonathan Nolan at their absolute best. So I'm going to I'm going to bring it down uh, even further here. I haven't uh haven't gotten into any of the heady great television that's being produced these days uh but my video content of the year was rogue one so (laughs) good if you haven't seen it yet uh i know it's gotten somewhat mixed reviews but i thought it was just fantastic ben and i saw it together on opening tonight uh, on on opening night it was a blast i've seen it uh once more since then and uh, i would totally go see it again the Force is with me, and I am with the Force, David. <laughs> um, moving on to app. Uh, my app of the year is one I just started using, which is Reach Now, the car sharing program by BMW. It behaves very similar to Car2Go if, you, if you've used that, but um, you get a car that's that's not a, a smart car. So you can um, you know take, take four or five passengers. Uh, it's enjoyable to drive. You can go on highways. Costs about the same amount, and it's a, a really great um, renting and, and drop-off experience. Ah, interesting. I tried Reach Now when they first launched in Seattle earlier in the year, and I stopped using it because I remembered the prices being way more expensive than um, than Cardigo. Have they uh, have they gotten better? I think they're the same. Right now, they're waiving sign up fees, which is like thirty nine bucks. I think that they'll probably start at some point, but it's forty, uh, yeah, forty cents a mile, and I think that's pretty comparable. I remember when I stopped using Cardigo like three or four years ago, it was uh, thirty three cents a mile, and I think has gone hmm. up since then. So. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, great in concept. If for the same price as a smart car, you could drive a BMW. Um, yeah, yeah. I take the BMW. And I think, uh, uh, sorry, not a mile per minute. Um, and I think it's actually kind of part of their um, their their plan for eventually building a self driving fleet. I think they're kind yeah. of like data collecting getting, vehicles, getting the data for machine learning. Yep. Yeah. Um, my app uh, also plays into a bunch of themes we've talked about on this show and throughout the year. And a company uh, is Amazon Music. I uh, discovered this in 2016, and um, as perhaps evidenced by my music carve out in Stevie Nicks, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time staying up on new music, and uh, the Amazon Prime Music is free with Prime and is pretty great, uh, especially for free. Um, so talking about business model disruption, um, the Amazon. If you are not already a Spotify or um, Pandora or other paid uh, music ser- or Apple Music uh, subscriber, and it's not something that's like so important to you to have a absolute full catalog. Um, free with Amazon Prime, the music app is pretty great. Yeah, I'd be curious, uh, if, uh, listeners, if you are a music lover and have tried out Amazon uh, uh, Amazon MP3, I would love to to get your review. Um, if you want to reach out to us uh, in the Slack, uh, go to acquired.fm. You can uh, you can see the the Slack where all the conversations happening, and uh, yeah, I, I'd love to hear about it from uh, from music lovers. 
Yeah. I also have a request too for uh, anyone out there on uh, going back to books. I love reading sci-fi and, um, but I'm super curious. I haven't read a lot of current science fiction and I would love to hear, um, read and, and learn about what people are imagining about the future today. And especially, um, women science fiction authors, uh, which I have read embarrassingly little. Um, so if you have any good recommendations for current sci-fi, especially by women authors, hit me up in the Slack. Awesome. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote-unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers, such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower-cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads... Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Well, listeners, we hope you had a great uh, 2016 and uh, uh, ring in the, uh, the, the 2017 with, uh, you know, however you choose to ring it in. Um, it's probably a week or so in right now, but uh, we hope you have a great year. If you uh, have been listening to the show for a long time, or even if you're brand new and uh, enjoyed the episode, um, we would love a review on iTunes and to uh, share it with your friends and, and colleagues or anyone that you think would be interested on, on Twitter or just uh, email or word of mouth. So thank you so much for being a listener and uh, have a great year. Happy 2017. We'll talk to you soon. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.